The Shadow Trader by Charles Williams. Trading shadows was an old profession. They were builders' materials, just a bit more specialist. Proper architects, the ones Salim's dad would have called sound, knew they needed shadows the same way they needed bricks or steel or carbon. Salim's dad told him it was the way things were done since the old days back on Earth, in places like Greece and Romania, places that knew things were done a certain way for a reason beyond tradition or habit. The best buildings, the strongest ones, the ones that evoked emotion in the people around and inside them, had souls. They didn't get them through architectural flair or pleasant landscaping. It was the shadows bound to their foundations. One was enough to do the trick, which was lucky because they were hard to come by. What worked for buildings then worked for spaceships now. You wanted the kind of ship people referred to as she through real affection and respect rather than custom? The kind that would pull you through any kind of scrape, seemingly by its own force of will or survival instinct? You needed a shadow, bound to its bones, knitting them together. That was where the traders came in. You could find one hanging round the edges of any large construction project. Just as the architect or engineer started to feel like the project was getting away from them, like they were getting out of their depth, they looked up and saw someone at the edge of the site, giving them the wink. The traders had a little bit of skill, a little bit of patter, and a little bit of magic. That was the way Salmon's dad taught it to him anyway. The lessons were on the brusque side. Salim's dad knew he was dying and needed to pass on what he knew. He was upfront about the fact he'd rather have taught it to Salim's brother, but he was too young and the knowledge had to go to someone. Salim's dad was very clear that he, Salim, was under no obligation to try and be the greatest shadow trader in history. It was obvious to all that wasn't going to happen. His only tasks were to survive long enough to procreate, not disgrace the family name, and remember his lessons verbatim so the knowledge could be passed on to the next generation correctly. First, Salim's dad told him, you need to find your project, building, ship, whatever. A popular misconception was that you turned up with a sack of shadows already prepared and sold one at random. That may have been how they did it in some other long, proud line of shadow traders, Salim's dad said, but not this one. You needed to do your due diligence, learn about the structure your shadow will be bound to forever. What is its purpose? Who is its owner? What qualities do they want in their asset? In other words, whose shadow do they need? Fraser's Rest was a shipyard and trading post in orbit around Sonus Prime, one of the oldest colonies in the system. At one time, it was the economic engine for the whole sector. But newer, more agile settlements had sprung up over the last hundred years or so, leaving Sonus behind. When it was built, Fraser's Rest was a shining testament to prosperity. Now, it was the kind of place where people like Salim didn't stand out. They still made ships there, but they were bulkier, less modern than the ones built by Sonus's near neighbours. It was the planet's own fault, Salim thought, 
affluence bred overpopulation, which bred adventurous types seeking their fortune elsewhere. And that all led here, to a spaceport where the metals seemed dull, power lines occasionally sparked for no particular reason, shipbuilders sat at bars and muttered about the old days, and most of the construction bays were dark and empty. Salim leaned against a pillar just inside the entrance to one of the few bays still being used. The ship's skeleton was laid out, great half-moon metal beams towering over him, circuitry and wiring threading through and around them. Workers were dotted about them, standing on gantries or crawling over them, strapped into harnesses. It was the most prestigious ship built there in decades, a luxury cruiser for a billionaire from another system who'd made his money in exotic spices and silks. When he was just a street kid sitting on a basket in a marketplace, eating sweet fruit and dreaming, the ships of Fraser's Rest were one of the things he wished for, like an expensive suit from the finest tailor. The shipyard's decline made no difference. He had the money now for whatever he wanted. And what he wanted was a great ship built at the shipyard he'd heard of as a boy. For Fraser's rest, it was almost a last chance. Many of the oldest shipbuilders based there had gone bust or been bought out, and those that remained were squeezing costs and compromising standards. The ships still flew, but their makers had no pride in them. This ship was different. Money and time were no object to the man who wanted it. It would remind everyone who saw it what Fraser's Rest once was. Salim had been on the station for a couple of days, watching the build, buying engineers drinks in bars. It wasn't hard to get a sense of what this ship's character, its soul, should be. It would be called whatever its owner chose to name it, but around the shipyard, they called it the Defiance. Second, Salim's dad told him, you find a person who matches those characteristics as closely as possible. Never settle on the first one you see. Give yourself options. Travel as far as you must. Are you trying to poison me? The girl with the ponytail angrily shoved the polystyrene bowl of food back at the vendor. Her voice sounded like she'd planned it to be loud, but it came out as a jagged whisper, scarred by the contents of the bowl. The vendor yelled at her unintelligibly and gesticulated at her to get away from his stool, just across from the construction bay where Salim was standing. She tried to yell back, coughed painfully instead, and stormed off in frustration down the station's main throughway. Salim watched her go. She wore a bulky jacket, carried a rucksack, and her hair was scrunched back out of her face. His dad would have filed her under possible and moved on. Salim thought she was probably close enough. By the time she got back to where she left the doctor, Ace's throat had just about stopped burning. The doctor was looking out of a viewing port at the completed cargo ship about to be launched. He turned and beamed at her as she stomped up to him. She scowled back. Professor, I thought you said this place did the best ramen you'd ever had, she said. He wrinkled his nose. What's wrong with your voice? He asked. 
She opened her mouth to give him a piece of her mind, but just started coughing again. Never mind, he said brightly. You're just in time for the launch. Professor, that was the worst thing I've ever eaten, she said, eventually recovering. It was like liquefied kebab from a van. Oh, he said. He looked around the decaying station. You know, now that you mention it, I remember this place being much more impressive. I think I might have picked the wrong year. Sorry, Ace. We'll go straight after the launch. How many ship launches have you seen over the years? What's so special about this one? He shrugged. Nothing. I just like them. Where will it go? What adventures will it have? She rolled her eyes. I think I'll just see you back at the TARDIS, she said. Salim watched the girl walk away from her friend. A genial-looking little man wearing a Panama hat and, inexplicably, carrying an umbrella. He toyed with the music box in his left-hand pocket and the silvery knife inside his coat. Third, Salim's dad told him, cut their shadow away from them. Cut cleanly, cut quick. Walk away, don't look back. The girl turned down a little used cut-through, well away from the station's main drag, at the closed-down end of the shipyard. Salim took the little music box out of his pocket. It looked old and ornate, silver once, now dulled. It had a small transmitter dish grafted to its side. He turned the corner into the cut-through and set the box going. Ace stopped in her tracks. She could hear a tune. It started off simply, but got increasingly complex until it was a whir of notes, almost like an electrical hum. She tried to take a step forward and found she couldn't. Don't try to move, someone said from behind her. She turned and saw a young man with scraggly hair and a poorly maintained beard. The noise was coming from a small silver box he held. Ace tried to run straight at him but only got a couple of steps before she felt like she was being dragged backwards and tumbled to the floor. Salim moved closer to her. It's your shadow, he said. It holds you in place. If it can't move, neither can you. He carefully drew a knife out of his coat. It was silver as well, but shinier than the music box. It had veins of circuitry running around the hilt and down the blade. He flicked a switch somewhere at the base of the hilt, and the circuits pulsed white. You'll need to hold still, he said. I'm not very good at this. Don't want to leave you with a ragged piece of shadow flapping around behind you. That's no good for you or me. Ace pulled herself to her feet. If you come any nearer, she said calmly, I'm going to kick you really hard. Then we sit here in checkmate, he said. You can go nowhere until I remove your shadow. If you kick me to death, and I don't doubt you could, he attempted a winning smile. I can't do that. And here you stay. There was a clatter behind him. He turned and saw the girl's friend at the end of the cut-through, trying to extricate himself from a pile of cables he'd apparently walked into. He succeeded and walked towards Salim with a friendly look on his face. Professor, look out! The girl yelled out. He's got a, a shadow lure, the doctor said brightly. Of course! It won't work on me. He was only a couple of feet away from Salim now. Why not? Salim asked. The doctor drew himself up to his full, unimpressive height 
and locked eyes with Salim. Something made Salim hold his gaze. Because, he said, I have no shadow. Salim looked down at the doctor's shadow just long enough for the little man to shove his hand with the tip of his umbrella, knocking the music box out of it. It smashed on the ground and fell silent. Before Salim could think what to do next, he got the full force of an angry girl's boot in the small of his back. He cried out and crumpled to the ground. Ace, the doctor said. What was that for? I was trying to tell you, Professor, she said. He's got a knife. The doctor picked it up and ran his finger down its blunt edge. It's not a knife, he said. It just looks like one. It cuts shadows, not flesh. He was trying to take my shadow, she said. He trades in them. I've dealt with his kind before. The lure and the cutter are their tools. He picked up the broken music box. Bit more advanced than when I last saw them. When was that? Ace asked. 19th century London, I think. Seriously? From his position on the ground, Salim tried to think of what his father would say. We endure through history, he said. Ours is a proud and noble profession. The doctor frowned. You may say that, he said, but this rather looked like someone weaving a knife at a girl in an alleyway. Nothing proud and noble in that. It's not how your ancestors did it. Salim struggled to his feet, leaving the cutter where it lay on the ground. What do you mean? he asked. Well, for one thing, the doctor said, there was a lot more trading and a lot less stealing. The shadow traders I met were nasty pieces of work, many of them. But they did mostly try and offer something in return for what they took. A deal. Of course, they rarely fully explained to their victims what taking their shadow would do to them. Salim shook his head. It does nothing. You just don't have a shadow. What could it do? Oh, nothing at first. But it takes their substance. They drift having no impact on other people or events. Their lives go nowhere. Yes, I think it must have been London I met your people last. Their victims usually ended up in freak shows. Or bedlam. Salim didn't know why, but he believed the man, even though parts of what he was saying were clearly insane. He believed him more than he believed his father anyway. But people sold their shadows willingly? He asked. The doctor studied him. Hmm, sometimes, he said. People down on their luck or who felt they would never amount to anything might. To be part of something massive, long-lasting, important. That's the dream your people sold. The shadow at the root of the great sphinx was a slave's. The strongest of the pharaoh's slaves, but a bound man all the same. Even I don't know his name. But you've heard of the sphinx... And I doubt you've ever set foot on Earth. It's the same thing architects or engineers feel, I suppose. But some people feel they have nothing to offer to posterity except their shadow. The doctor blinked, doffed his hat at Salim, and walked away. We're just leaving him, Ace demanded. Without the lure, he may be a parasite, but it's not too dangerous, said the doctor. Come on, Ace. I'm sure somewhere in all of time, I can find you a nice lunch. They rounded a corner and were gone.
Salim leaned against his pillar, watching the defiance take shape and thinking about his father, while an arc light behind him cast his shadow crazily towards the unfinished ship. For a moment, he felt what that slave and all the others must have felt, a desire to be bigger than himself. But it slipped away. <laughs>